Quick Medical Podcast listeners, this is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, coming to you today with the pleasure of speaking with a pair of medical students who have been successful at a very early stage of their career at conducting some impressive research that I, I hope to ask them about. Gopika Punchi and Catherine Shum are the two you will hear from momentarily. They're both third-year medical students at Western University in London, Ontario, here in Canada. So for those of you Outside the country, third year is most typically our clerkship year. So they're in the midst of their clinical training and getting ready for their final year before going on to residency. The paper that we're going to be discussing, you'll find in the June 2023 issue of Medical Education, which is an issue dedicated to equity, diversity, and inclusion issues. And the paper is titled Anti-Oppressive Pedagogy in Medical Education, a qualitative study of trainees and faculty. Kobika or Catherine, you can decide who answers first, but I'm interested to hear from both of you how you got involved in education or research in education or this particular topic so early in your medical training. Sure, I can start us off. So I just want to say thank you, Dr. Eva, for having us on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about this paper. Catherine and I kind of got involved in this project just through the first year of medical school, basically, and kind of our experiences and learning in a mostly lecture-based setting, especially because we started medical school in the time of COVID, we were very limited in the opportunities for actual patient engagement or clinical engagement. So pretty much all of our first year medical school was in lectures. And I think when you come to medical school, you have a lot of thoughts about what you're going to learn in medical school and what you expect to learn and what you expect to ultimately come out of medical school knowing. And one of those things is how to understand and be able to deal with patients from a wide variety of backgrounds. And unfortunately, most medical schools are very didactic-based, very lecture-based, very competency-based programs where we found that we would encounter scenarios when we were able to go into clinical settings where we weren't able to fully address patient issues because we didn't have enough context or background about their experiences. Things like Indigenous patients and their health experiences or experiences with the healthcare system are very rarely touched on in medical curricula. We do get a couple of lectures here and there about it, but it's very isolated. So I think we started this project, I guess, trying to understand what are the barriers in place to understanding anti-oppression as a medical student and then ultimately implementing this into practice. So we're able to deal with every kind of patient that we encounter and issues that we may not necessarily be completely prepared for, but at least we have a framework to approach these issues in clinical practice later. Yeah, just going to reiterate what Gopika said, and thank you, Dr. Eva, for having us on here today to chat about this. For us, it was also, we were a lot online, so a lot of what we got was more module-based. The small groups maybe started a little bit later, but when we first kind of came up with this topic, it was a lot more of us having discussions between each other, feeling like there was a gap that wasn't really addressed and something that we wanted to see more of in medical education, especially as we were kind of new and we didn't see it outright coming in the first year. We kind of wanted to understand a bit about what are the barriers and how we can better address this and in the future hopefully see some of these things being more implemented in education especially in the earlier years before you get into clerkship so that when you get to clinical practice you have a little bit more of a framework and a little bit more of an ability to apply these frameworks. 
Those are, again, impressive observations so early on to start thinking at, at this level. And it's one thing to see the challenges that you've identified and another, as you just alluded to, Catherine, to start actually doing something about it in order to start getting a feel for what your participants suggested might be done about it or where the barriers lie. Can I just start by asking one of you to define how are you thinking about anti-oppressive pedagogy? What is that in your minds? Yeah, so when we initially started the project, we kind of had thought about anti-oppression and anti-racism as two separate kind of frameworks or approaches. So anti-oppressive practice being any like act that challenges inequalities with the aim of social justice, with the aim of making change, especially change targeting minoritized individuals or racialized groups. Anti-racism was more specifically that in the realm of race and ethnicity. We moved away from that a little bit to just using anti-oppression because we didn't want to define what oppression was for each participant who we interviewed. We didn't necessarily want everyone to think about oppression as only being race-based oppression or ethnicity-based oppression. So we kind of allowed participants to define what oppression was to them then what anti-oppression meant to them. We didn't even really preempt them with any kind of specific definition that we took from the literature. We kept it very broad. I mean, we just were interested in knowing how do you understand what oppression is, especially because a lot of our participants were residents and medical students. We thought it was important to know, like at this stage of your training, what you understand to be oppression and to do with that, how do you see oppression play out so far in medical school and what you've seen in clinical practice? And then what does anti-oppression that mean to you? And you took on that issue with a continuum of stakeholders from learners to faculty, as I understand it. Without asking you to recite your interview guide, can you give us a sense of what sorts of questions you were asking them? What were you trying to get them to respond to, to give you a better feel for their views on how anti-oppressive pedagogy could be used? So our interview guide was more, we like to work upon it, and it was a little more flexible in that aspect. We usually kind of started with what does anti-oppression mean to you? And depending on their specific circumstances, we would kind of delve into a little bit more on what approaches that they had, what they thought was important, what shapes their identity, maybe what drove them to be interested in like anti-oppression and anti-racism. We did kind of leave a lot more of the questions open-ended as opposed to kind of yes-no questions and just tried to get a really big sense of where the participant was coming from and what type of experiences and clinical experiences that they might have had that shaped what their values and what their thoughts were on that process and then kind of just let them take it away in a way. Were they selected in any particular way as people who were known to have views on this topic or was it more of an open sample? That's a very interesting question. And I think it's also really an important thing to talk about with regard to this paper is that we use theoretical sampling. We just put out notices or asked graduate medical education and undergraduate medical education offices to send out a little blurb about our study. And I guess by kind of the nature of the study and the subject material and what we were going to be talking about in the study, I feel that the participants did kind of self-select, although that was not our intention. The vast majority of our participants were individuals who had at least to some degree already engaged at their individual campuses or at some point in their past in something related to anti-oppression. So either they had carried out projects, they had been involved in curriculum reinvention, or they had a personal interest in it, often because of their identity, because of their own experiences that they had faced regarding oppression. 
that was not our intention, but that ended up being the case that it was almost a self-selected population of people who were interested in the topic. And rest assured, I'm not asking as a critique. I'm asking more to try to contextualize the experiences and what made these individual stakeholders for this particular topic. I think we can you know, fairly say that for most studies, you know, people get involved if they have some particular interest in that area. I wanted to sort of better understand that in part because I'm actually going to read from your abstract at this point. The opening of your results I found quite provocative. The findings suggest that existing approaches to anti-oppressive pedagogy and medical education are misaligned with the perceived values, priorities, pace, biomedical focus, and hierarchical nature of medical education and medical practice. That says it all, doesn't it? There's a lot of this system that seems to be out of sync with anti-oppressive pedagogical approach. What led you to that claim? What was it that led you to worry about whether or not the system and the views were aligned? We hear a lot about the term competency-based medical education, that the goal of medical school and residency training is to develop a skill, master that skill, and then be able to you know, apply that skill in other scenarios. But fundamentally, we didn't see that anti-oppression was necessarily a competency. It was more like a way of thinking or a framework of thinking that you are constantly mastering or you're constantly learning about reflecting on and reapplying. And then it's cyclical, basically, whereas I think competencies are more linear. So that was kind of where this idea that there was a fundamental misalignment between medical education as it exists today and anti-oppressive pedagogy in that one is linear and the other is cyclical. One requires you to constantly be reflecting on your experiences, whereas the other is more mastery-based. And I'm not saying that I don't think people can master anti-oppression or how to be anti-oppressive, but I think ultimately, you know, the world is constantly changing. Therefore, we have to be constantly relearning and unlearning based on our experiences, based on what we see in others, ways in which we can apply anti-oppressive practices so that kind of fundamentally was where that difference came from. And the other aspect was, this was something Dr. Sakara really thought about and discussed, was this idea of zero-sum thinking in medical education, where there's a limited amount of time, and there's only so much you can fit in that amount of time in uh, medical school. And the, the things that we need to include are biomedical topics there. You know, we have to do our cardiology block for four weeks. We have to do a block on nephrology for four weeks. We have to do a gastroenterology block for four weeks. So there was this idea that there's only so much time and this is what you have to fit in, and there's no flexibility. So all that can be accommodated with regard to anything related to social justice is small sessions that occur maybe once or twice in a year. But fundamentally, again, because so much of thinking and learning about oppression involves having to have constant discussions, constantly reflecting on your experience, that we didn't feel that these parachuted sessions happening once or twice a year were enough to fully expose students to the amount of thinking you had to do about oppression to actually practice anti-oppression as a clinician. Yeah, I'll stop there. Catherine, do you want to add anything? <laughs> yeah, I just kind of wanted to add, it wasn't just us either. I think a lot of our participants also felt that there was this fundamental misalignment in terms of biomedical topics were seemed to be perceived as maybe more valuable or more worth their time, as opposed to anti-oppressive education that they've been receiving. And so the zero sum framing wasn't just that we were, you couldn't have both at the same time. It was also that in terms of the schools or in terms of curricula that we see, a lot of it is not tested or kind of seems more like an add on. And a lot of our participants felt that as well. 
And that was kind of one of the main ideas that we saw a lot of the themes that we saw throughout our interviews was that they saw this misalignment in terms of value of what medicine valued in teaching. And so what stands out to you as most surprising from your findings? What were you not expecting to hear? And let me ask two questions at the same time, because I'm also curious to know if there was anything you found that was optimistic in terms of how we might continue to evolve so that we can improve upon the misalignment that you described. To be honest, there wasn't so much that I think we were particularly surprised to hear because so much of what the participants were talking about were things that we had experienced as well. I guess I will say I was very surprised at how pervasive other students also felt that the resistance to change was. A lot of the participants had attempted to, in some ways, even in small ways, to modify curricula, to speak with administrators at the school, and we're kind of met with the same resistance that there's not enough time, there's not enough energy, and there's nobody who is educated on these topics in order to be able to integrate them into curricula. That would, I guess, be the one surprising thing was that there was a lot of resistance from the administrative level. And despite there being a lot of individuals who are experts on topics of oppression, it didn't seem like medical schools were willing to engage them into developing curricula because I think funding is always an issue. If you want people to be involved in developing curricula, you also want to adequately compensate them. So we talked about this a little bit in the paper, but kind of the idea that the expectations for medical schools is often that people will do work for curricular development on their own time and on their own money without being fairly compensated. That burden ended up going onto a lot of racial and minoritized individuals who are experts in this area and may be interested in teaching medical students about it. But ultimately, if they're not adequately compensated for their time and their work and their energy, then it's not really fair to ask them to be involved in the development of curricula. So that was something that I really enjoyed hearing our participants talk about because it seemed like uh, then going on to your second question, something positive to come out of the study was that I think there is a lot of awareness in the current medical students about this issue. And it gives me a lot of hope that if so many of us are thinking about this now, that by the time we're in residency and we're attending, that we'll be there for our medical students that who we're teaching at the time. We're there to improve medical curricula, you know, in 10, 15 years down the line where we can support students who are interested in anti-oppressive practice. And so, Catherine, let me just ask you to sort of take that bit of optimism and one final question for those who are at your level and are anticipating you know, having that opportunity that Kubica just described, or even for faculty who are already in place and have some authority to start to make change, what do your results lead you to believe would be the first thing that you would want to try to build further momentum towards the anti-oppressive pedagogies that you're promoting? I think one thing that a lot of participants have kind of alluded to and that we discussed as well is that open discussion dialogue with each other and kind of taking the opportunity to learn and discuss and self-reflect is one of the bigger aspects to change as opposed to maybe didactic learning or modules online that students kind of watch at home because I feel that a lot of people may watch at home but if you don't have someone also to discuss with or you're not taking the time to self-reflect it's not as effective and you don't really learn to apply it to your own life. I think a lot of participants were very also on board with the idea that open discussion and having safe spaces to have these discussions is really important and would be maybe one of the 
easier first steps for us to take as a community. There is also talk of, I think, having increasing diversity at higher levels of power that we discussed. I think a lot of the times when the people who are making these kind of institutional changes or the people who are the ones that are deciding these type of curricula factors, if they're not aware, they don't necessarily have lived experiences or have the type of knowledge, it's a lot more difficult for them to implement that into curricula. And so one of the kind of barriers and something that we would see or would like to see would be maybe increasing diversity at those higher levels of power, especially in medicine where it is more hierarchical. Excellent. So definitely some long-term and some short-term hopes. And there are additional suggestions in the paper that we, as you know, won't have time to get to, but I'll just reference our listeners back to that so they can get the full scope of what you've been alluding to in this brief conversation. For those who want those details, again, the paper is entitled Anti-Oppressive Pedagogy in Medical Education, a Qualitative Study of Trainees and Faculty. It's in the June 2023 issue of the journal. And Gopika Punchi and Catherine Schum are the two that you've been listening to speaking about it. Thank you both. Good luck with your last year and a bit of training. And I hope that you're able to continue your interest in medical education scholarship as you move into residency and start making some of these changes you just described. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Mm -hmm.